Good morning. Whew, that was a prayer, Spencer. I don't know what to do after that. That's a little, I don't know if I should be scared or what. Uh, well, I'm very happy to be in front of you this morning. Uh, I haven't been in this space in a while, so uh, if you prayed for me uh, to come back in this space, I very much appreciate it. This is not like the easiest job. It's a very fun thing, but not the easiest spot to be here in this space with you. But I am very excited uh, to open up the text with us this morning. If you are new or you've been uh, with us, uh, want to look at your worship guide, it says, you see that graphic, uh, we are in a series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we started in the fall, we're picking now back up, and the title of this series is The Descent into Greatness. And we're just tracking with Jesus on this descent, and, and the, way, the reason we've used those terms is in Mark's gospel, in Mark uh, chapter 8, Jesus for the first time tells the disciples, hey, here's what's going to happen in my ministry, guys. I'm going towards death. You guys have been with me. You know I've done amazing things. You, you're, you're understanding I'm the Messiah. Now that that's getting clearer for you, I'm going to tell you why I've come. I am descending towards Jerusalem, the cross, my death, and resurrection. And the disciples they're struggling with that, and we're going to see that as we continue through Mark. But Jesus is making his descent. His face is now towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. He knows what's coming, and he's going to do his very best to get his disciples, his followers, ready to understand that event as best they can. And I love this series, this idea that Jesus is descending into greatness. And it's, it's been a huge challenge for me as I've read it and recognized Jesus is inviting us into that. Last week, if you were here, Spencer started off Mark chapter 9. In the beginning of Mark chapter 9, Jesus and three of the disciples, you guys remember who they are? <laughs> yes. Thank you, Jonathan. Very good. Don't call them out. Just affirm. That's good. Uh, uh, Peter, James, and John, they're going to go with Jesus, and they're going to be on top of the mountain. And if you're here, on top of the mountain was this amazing moment. Jesus was shining. I mean, there are dead people now alive, talking with Jesus. Uh, and it's just an amazing moment. Well, this morning, we're going to pick up in the narrative, Mark's narrative, and we're going to come off the mountain. We're going to see what's been happening now at the base of the mountain. And there has been some stuff going on, and, and Jesus and these three disciples are going to walk into quite an active story. And so this morning, by way of introduction, we're just going to introduce the characters in the narrative. And my goal is, is maybe as you're listening to this, you can identify with one of those characters. Maybe your heart, when you listen to this, you go, okay, you know what? I think I am like this person in the story. The first are the disciples that were left at the bottom. These are a group of guys that are going to fail, and they're going to fail pretty publicly. For the first time in their ministry, they're going to have a failure, and it's not going to be a private moment. It's going to be a public moment. Has that been a story for you lately? Have you failed and done so in a public way? That's probably inviting ridicule. That's a hard spot to be in. The next group is the crowd. The crowd is going to be this large mass of, un, like, you don't know the individuals. You just know the crowd is there. And the crowd is going to be these people who stand just on the outside of engaging with Jesus, they like to watch, they like to see, they like to be there when exciting things happen, but, but they have just a foot back. They're not yet engaged with the Savior. They're watching. 
Jesus is actually going to call out the crowd. He's going to call out everyone pretty significantly. And maybe that is like you. Maybe you're interested, but you've just kept a distance. You, you, you show up to watch, but your heart's not yet in it. You have no skin in the game. A third group are the scribes. They don't get much playtime this morning, but they're there, and the scribes are really just an extension of the crowd. And they're the part of the crowd, and this is never us. They always show up and think they know the answer, right? They show up, and they're like, no, no, I've got it. I understand what the real, real solution is here. Just let me take control. We have the scribes. And then we have a father. We have a father this morning, a parent. It could be a father or a mother, but a parent. In the narrative, it's the father who's brought his son. And the father is a desperate man. He's desperate. The father has probably come to the end of his line. He's come to the end of, the, of all his resources, and he is desperate to get relief for his son. If you found yourself in a place like that where you are desperate and you're looking for relief, for hope. And then finally, we have the son. We have someone who is so oppressed, the son of the father, who is so oppressed by evil. Like evil has become such a thing in his life that his part in the narrative, like he as an individual, almost takes a back seat because the evil that is afflicting him is the biggest part of the story. That's what we're going to see. We really don't find out much about him. We find out about the evil that is oppressing him. Have you found yourself there? In, this, in a stage of life when evil really is taking the front seat of your life. There is some demonic spiritual oppression that is controlling you. And those are the characters this morning that we're going to walk into. So I'm just going to take a moment and pray for myself. I know you guys are there, but it just helps me. So let's take a moment and pray, and we're going to jump into the Scripture. Jesus, um, we really ask that you... Uh, would speak to us as Spencer prayed, open up your word, open up my lips, open up our ears and hearts. Scripture, God, is powerful because it is of you and it's from you. We need the power of Christ to change us, to transform us, Jesus. So we pray that happens this morning as we all look into your word and ask to hear from you, Holy Spirit. Jesus, in your good name, uh, we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, if you haven't already, open up to Mark chapter 9 or click there on your phone. Or if you don't, you can just follow along in the worship guide that's there for you. I love it. Like if you don't have a pen, grab a pen. Like nudge your neighbor. Somebody will have a pen. Grab a pen if you're going to use your worship guide and just mark it up this morning. And here's the thing I want you to look for as we walk through this text. And it's all like the, the action moments. There's going to be running. There's going to be yelling. There's going to be emotion. So I just want you, as we walk through this, just to mark those things. Just point them out because it's all the way through this, uh, this little piece of Scripture here in Mark. And starting in verse 14, we're going to read it in sections. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And asked him, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So imagine 
the scene, if you would. Here is Jesus. He's got the three guys with him, and they're coming up upon the scene, and they see this crowd. And somehow, probably in the center of this crowd, you have the scribes and the disciples that were left, and there's argument. And somehow when Jesus comes down, the crowd sees him, and they're so excited to see Jesus that they are running towards him. Now, we don't know why they're running. I mean, you could surmise that maybe they're like, hey, like, daddy's home. Like, he's going to fix the whole situation. Like, Jesus is showing up. Maybe they think Jesus can do the thing the disciples were not able to do. But all we know is that when Jesus shows up, people, like, they start surrounding him, and they run to Christ. And this argument must have been pretty significant because Jesus says, okay, you know, in our terms, what's, what's this argument about? And the father pipes up. And this is where we see for the first time that the disciples in their ministry have failed. Now, the disciples do a lot of blunders in the Gospels. We catch that and we can read that. But this place, this point when this Son has been brought to them and this evil spirit is residing in him. Up to this point, we don't see them failing to actually perform this type of ministry. If you look, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 1, when Jesus called all the disciples to himself, he named them by name and he counts out the 12. One of the really significant things he does is he says, I am giving you guys authority over unclean spirits to heal and to cast out demons, Right? And so this was like part of the disciples' M.O. When Jesus sends them out, you know, they go out in his name and they cast out evil spirits. And it's like a big deal. It's a big part of their ministry. But for some reason in this moment, when the disciples go to perform this ministry, uh, something's not working. Right? Something is just not working the way they think it should. Now, we don't know for sure maybe what their actions were. We just don't get that part of the narrative. Uh, but isn't it sometimes just helpful for us to remember that, like, the people even closest to Jesus, they have blunders, and they fail. And sometimes they fail in a very public way. And when you fail in an extremely public way, like the disciples are doing this morning as we read this, they're going to remember it. And this is going to be a learning moment for them. I promise you they will remember this until the day they die. Do you remember that one time we couldn't do it and there was an argument in the crowd and it was crazy? Right? And we need to remember something very important. that Authority in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gave them the authority to cast out the unclean spirits. Authority is always given by someone else. Whatever was happening in the disciples' heart and their actions, somehow they got that authority and their place in it messed up. They got it disordered, right? And that unclean spirit is not submitting. It's important for us to remember that there is one hero of the story, right? Only Jesus. Jesus is the authority giver. He's the hero. He's the one that enables the disciples to do this ministry. And you can see in this a moment, you can just imagine the disciples like turning red, like, okay, yeah, yeah, we didn't get it, Jesus. But then when he asks this question, the person that speaks up, the person that speaks up the loudest, who's going to answer, and now the story kind of pivots towards the father. The father, he says, Jesus, I brought my son to you. Like, I'm glad you're finally here. Like, I came to you, but your disciples, like, they couldn't do it. Jesus, uh, you know, hey, you're here. I'm glad I found you. 
And then Jesus, in response to the father who says, you know, I brought my son, but the disciples, they couldn't do it. We read in verse 19, Jesus has a, a response that maybe catches us a little off guard. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Did you catch that? Faithless generation. How long am I to bear with you? How long do I have to put up with you guys? How long do I have to be here? If you didn't sense it, that's a pretty sharp rebuke for the crowd. And Jesus just looking over this group of people. And if you study your scripture, this statement, oh, faithless generation, how long do I have to bear with you? This statement has an echo out of the Old Testament. Now, I think it's worth our time just to go back in our memory, and we're going to describe it, and just see where this statement is coming from in Israel's history. Because this term, faithless generation, is not a positive term. It's not a positive descriptor. Back when Israel is delivered out of Egypt, so follow with me. The nation of Israel, they have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. God sends who to deliver them? Moses. Moses comes, God sends the deliverer, and he delivers Israel out of Egypt, right? And where are they going? You guys remember, where are the Israelites going? Someone said it. The promised land. They're going to Canaan. I mean, they've been slaves, like they've been making bricks without straw, like they've been oppressed, and now they're out and God delivers them with these amazing miracles. There's pestilence and there's pillars of fire by night, pillars of cloud by day. Like, it is an amazing journey, and God brings them all the way from Egypt, and they're just about to go into the promised land, right? Canaan is right there across the line, and they're all camped, and they're waiting. And God says, okay, before we go in, I need you, I want you to take a representative, take a man from each tribe, take that man and send him into the promised land. Send him over there because we're going to just do some good old-fashioned espionage. We're going to find out what's going on on the other side of the line. And so the 12 spies, remember this? The 12 spies are sent out and they go into the land. And Canaan at that point was just a very fertile, it was a very prosperous place and the spies go and they like spy everything out and they come back and here's their report. They're like, man, this place is amazing. There are like clusters of grapes so big it takes two dudes to carry them out. Like, and, but there's these big cities and they have these huge giant walls and they're like literally giants. Like Josh Roark size and up. Like everyone's just really tall and strong. Like, there's these big dudes over there. And the Israelites said, we're going to look like grasshoppers in their sight. Remember that? But two of the spies, two of the spies say, yeah, all that stuff is true. There are strong cities and there are giants that are great in battle. But God is with us. God will go with us to give us this place. And you've seen what God's done before. God's going to take away their protection. It's ours for the taking. And in this moment, all these Israelites that have come out of Egypt, that have seen all of these miracles, that have seen all of this amazing stuff that God has done, they get angry and they get scared. 
And they're so mad at Joshua and Caleb for pushing the thing and saying, no, we can do it, that they want to stone them. They want to go back to Egypt. They want to stone the two positive spy reports and turn and go back to oppression. And in this moment, God gets so angry with Israel that he says to Moses, I tell you what, Moses, let me just wipe them all out with a pestilence and I'll bring up a new generation to go into the land and take it. It's an amazing part of Israel's history. God literally says to Moses, let's just start over again. Let's just wipe them out. And here's what he says in Numbers 14, 27. His words, how long must I bear with this evil congregation that murmurs against me? Do you catch it? How long must I bear with you? How long must I be with you? Here's the amazing thing about that portion in Numbers is that Moses intercedes with God on behalf of Israel. And he says, God, please don't do this for your fame and your glory. Preserve them, Lord, because we want people to exclaim your greatness, show your power even through this unfaithful people. And God relents. And God does not start over. Now, he does punish. There is punishment. But he, he takes it to the next generation. In the same way this morning, we're seeing uh, this pre-runner, Moses, as a pre-runner of Christ, Right? Moses is going to intercede for Israel, yet here we have Jesus who is going to be the final mediator. Jesus is looking at the faithless generation that it is hurting him to endure with, and yet he is going to be the one that sticks to it and is going to be the better Moses. He's coming to be the mediator for a... Uh, the one who will take the sin debt for a faithless generation that does not even honor him. Think about this. Here's Jesus up on the mountain. And up on the mountain, when the transfiguration happened, things were amazing, right? There was glory. And there was order. And things were right. It was this amazing moment. Just like when Jesus stepped out of heaven, to be born as a baby, he left all of that. Everything where it was just glorious and there was no opposition. Everything listened to his command. He comes out of that. And he steps in to the incarnation to be born. On the mountaintop, we see this, just a little snippet of that again. Upon the mountain, everything's clear. Everything's right. It's glorious. And yet Jesus knows that he must leave that this descent into greatness. He must leave that and come down to where we are, where the crowd is, where humanity, the very humanity he created, is rejecting him. And I think for us, as Jesus invites us in this descent into greatness, as Spencer preached last week, we need these moments of clarity, right? And sometimes these moments of clarity where there's rightness and order, if we're followers of Christ, happen. Uh, maybe it's like a, a conference. If you're in college, maybe you go to a passion conference. Or you take a silent retreat, and God is just, you're like, oh, it's so clear. Jesus, I get it. You're amazing. 
I understand. Yes, I want to go. I want to do. We have these moments where it's just so clear and good. And then God says, good, now I'm going to call you down the mountain. And college student, I need you to go back into the social and academic life of your university. I need you to engage. Perhaps you're a parent and, you know, you're reading the book or you're listening to podcasts because you don't have time to read books anymore. Or you're watching the thing and, like, the parenting stuff, like, it's so clear and it's right. And you're like, okay, this is good. I got it, Lord. I get it. You're good. This is how we're going to do it. And then you walk into your living room and people are throwing Lego blocks or they're, blocks, or they're biting each other. Or, you know, they have their brother hanging upside down off of the couch, right? Like, and you're like, oh, it was really clear back there, Lord. But Jesus is calling us down the mountain to where the crowd is. Uh, maybe you're sitting with that, like, trusted friend or counselor. And maybe in that moment, that discipleship moment, it's so clear. And you're understanding who Jesus is, Right? But you must leave that moment and go back. Now, it doesn't mean we don't hold on to that, and that's not important, and that was very vital for us. But we don't stay up on the mountaintop where it's always glorious and right and ordered. We go back down to where the people are. This call, this descent into greatness, is this same call to make disciples. Disciples are rarely found up on the mountaintop. If the call for us and the call of Redstone Church is to go forth and make disciples unto the Lord, uh, then we must follow him into the descent to where the crowd is, where we were found. We weren't found up on the mountaintop. We were found in a mess. Jesus is calling us into this descent into greatness because it's down here, it's in this moment where we're going to see this cycle of death and resurrection happen. So let's keep reading, picking up in verse uh, 19. So Jesus' response at the very end of that, he says, after the father kind of outplays the crowd, he says, well, bring the boy to me, bring him to me. In verse 20, and they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. The scene now is just getting more chaotic. So before we had Jesus coming down, we have people running up, and we have the Father kind of out shouting the crowd and saying, okay, Jesus, you're finally here. I, I need you. I need to talk to you. And now Jesus says, well, bring the boy. And you can just imagine, you know, the crowd parts, and I don't know if they're carrying him. I don't know if someone's got him by the hand. But the boy comes in. As soon as this child gets close enough to the Savior, the evil spirit, which recognizes God, immediately throws him on the ground. Can you see this? And you can just see the crowd, you know, like kind of stepping back. I mean, this is pretty creepy stuff. And it's just getting more chaotic. 
How many people have been in first aid class? And if you're a doctor or nurse, you don't count in this illustration uh, because it's what you do for a living. But for those rest of us that have like gone through first aid, if you ever, every year in industry, I had to get re-upped on first aid. And here's what they do, you know. Uh, they tell you, hey, if someone is having a seizure, here's what you do. You call 911, right? They press that into you. And then you like clear the space around the person because this person's body is no longer in control and you let them move around until professionals arrive because you don't know what you're doing, right? Because you don't. Uh, and that sounds really great when you're in first aid class and you're sitting there and you're like, uh-huh, yeah, okay. Sounds pretty simple. Call 911, kind of stand and watch. Not, not a big deal. Let me tell you something. If you're ever in the vicinity when something like this happens and someone has like a, a true seizure, like it is an extremely unnerving moment, at least for those of us. I don't know if Eddie's here. He's our ER doc. He probably loves it. But for most of us, it's like a very unnerving moment. And this boy, I mean, it's like more than a seizure. It can almost be described as like a rabid fit. He's flailing like there's foam coming out of his mouth. I don't know if he's maybe shouting. And this is the moment we find ourselves in. Here's the father. He's crying out. Here's the boy. He's doing things that bodies shouldn't do. And here's Jesus, right? Now, I'm quite sure that you and I in this moment, if we had the power of God in that moment, here's what we would have done with all that stress and all that pressure pushing in on us. We would have been like, come out of the, you know, come out demon, right? Like we would have relieved the tension right then. And then we would be like taking photos, you know, and like putting it on Facebook and Instagram, like, hey, bottom of the mountains, demon free, come on over. Like, it's really great, right? I mean, it's just, if we had that kind of power in that moment, I'm pretty sure we would have immediately stepped in to address the problem. But this is not what Jesus does. And this is where, uh, for me, is maybe one of the hardest things of what Jesus does. He stops the moment. Here's the boy. He's flailing around in this fit. And Jesus starts asking, like, diagnostic questions. Tell me, how long has this been going on? Now, does Jesus need a medical background for what he's about to do? Is the Savior of the world, like, in the dark about what's happening? I don't think so. Does it matter if it's a two-day demon or a 12-year demon? Like, if Jesus is going to cast it out, he's going to cast it out. It doesn't matter how long it's persisted. Now, here's what I believe is happening in this moment is that Jesus is going to slow down the scene. And he's going to do something that only like mighty God and wonderful counselor can do in this moment. He's going to take his finger and he's going to lean in on this dad. And he's just going to put just a little bit of pressure. And he knows this question, how long has this been going on? Is going to bring something out of this father that needs to come out. And the amazing thing about that is fixing the problem that the Father has come for Jesus to fix is not the most immediate thing on Jesus' heart in that moment. Mighty God has decided that immediately healing this boy right now and just solving it 
is not the first priority in this moment. Mighty God is going to take his finger and just put pressure just a little bit on the Father. And we see when he does that, um, what comes out, right? Has anybody ever been in that situation? Anybody felt that? You've come to the Lord desperate, and you've asked him to heal, to do a thing, and the Lord is just letting it remain there just just for a while. And what comes out of us when that happens? So probably about three years ago after the uh, birth of her third son, my wife, uh, Michelle, started, she kind of always had migraines, but after the birth of her third child, migraines started coming a little more consistently. And then probably in the last year, year and a half, migraines have just like, they have been such a part of our life. And not, I don't, I've never had migraines. I don't know if you're going to have a little migraine. These all seem to be big, massive migraines. Just week after week, day after day, these migraines have been coming. And let me tell you something. I have come before the Lord, I don't know how many times, and said, and repeated these Father's words, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Would you please heal I just sometimes feel the Father's finger just touching my heart. And if he's not acting yet, he's just pushing, saying, what's going to come out if I don't do it immediately, Daniel? What's in there? What's in there? Sometimes mighty God gets to make the decision that delaying the thing you think is most important is going to pull something out of you that Jesus wants to work on. Now, I'll tell you, the stuff that has come out of me has not uh, been pleasant, the stuff that come out of my heart, right? There's been some wicked stuff in there that the Lord has pulled out. It doesn't mean we don't keep asking. It doesn't mean I don't keep coming to the Father and saying, please heal. But in that space, Jesus, he's just laying in there, putting a little bit of pressure Next thing to think about is his father's response. It almost feels contradictory. He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This word belief in the scripture in English, it is uh, sometimes translated faith. Pistos is the Greek word for faith, belief. It's almost the same exact, same root word, pistos, pistos, right? And this father, he's dealing, he's having a crisis of faith. Now, in some ways, he, he is in contrast to the generation. He's brought his son to Jesus. But we don't know if it's the disciples' failure like to cast out this unclean spirit. We don't know if it's uh, the argument that's got his faith weakened. We don't know if maybe it's Jesus' question. He's just thinking back through the long years, and nothing's happened. And, and he's just like, oh, I've tried so often, Lord. And when he responds, we recognize that his faith, it's weak, isn't it? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Here's a few things that we need to take home about faith this morning that are important for us. Number one, faith is not, our faith is not perfect. Only the object of our faith is perfect. Scripture is extremely, extremely narrow and exclusive about what our faith can reside in. 
Jesus in the Gospel of John says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through and by him. Our faith can only rest in the perfect person and work of Jesus Christ. There is no other safe or right place for it to be, right? But looking at this Father and looking at ourselves, we recognize faith, growth in faith is a lifelong process. We just don't arrive on the scene and it's perfect and it's always 100%. Um, just like the Father, we get in these desperate situations and we might see weaknesses or holes in our faith. We've got to remember Jesus is the hero of the story, not us. And he doesn't reject this Father for his puny faith. Like, he, he works with it. He doesn't say, well, too bad, you don't have 100%. It's not perfect. Move on. Like, he works with what the Father can bring. But thirdly, we should not, and there's a warning here, we should not be settled with weak faith, weak belief. We shouldn't be settled to let doubts just linger unchallenged because doubts have a way of growing in us, right? When we recognize if Jesus has put his finger on us and the stuff that's coming out, there's weakness and there's stuff unchallenged, we need to take that Head on to the Lord. Back in Mark chapter 6, Jesus marvels at the people of his hometown of Nazareth. And he says, he can do no mighty works here because no one believes in me. Hometown boy, everybody's like, no, I saw you grow up. I just, I just don't, I don't believe it. Jesus gives a warning about that. Don't let weak faith go unchallenged in yourself. Pursue growth in it. Consider faith this process of trust. Grow in your trust with the Lord. All right, run out of time. Go back to your scripture, verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, once again, man, this scene, people are just running. There is flailing. It just keeps being active. And he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to, him, said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Uh, parents, for us, I think there are some takeaways from the scripture. Uh, the first is, is we, would, we do well to follow this father's response to a crisis in his child's life, right? It is the right thing for us to take our children to Jesus. There, there isn't a greater hope, there isn't a greater place for us to take our children to. We do well to follow his response. And all of us, if we have children or parents that want to be, one day our child will be oppressed by something that is spiritually dark. I was talking to a dad this week, and he said, honestly, sometimes I wish it had been something so physical as this. That almost would have been easier. Our kids will face spiritual darkness, spiritual oppression, and spiritual attack. Where are we going to take them? As Jerry preached, in the evil day, where are you going? Where do you have relationship built up? We do well to follow the Father. We take our children to Jesus. 
Because he is the one that has authority over the unclean spirit. He is the hero of the story. Uh, in Luke's account of this narrative, uh, Luke adds one other thing, and that is, is that after Jesus has healed the boy and he raises him up, he gives him back to the dad, right? Jesus doesn't keep the boy, keep him with him, make him a disciple, add him to the crew. He's like, no, father, here you go. Here's your child back. And this is really what parenting looks like for us with the Lord. The Lord uh, is freeing them uh, challenging the oppression in their life, and then he gives them right back to us and says, here, mother, father, here's the child I've given you to steward and to raise. We're taking them to Jesus. Jesus does a spiritual heavy lifting that only he can do, and he gives them back to us and says, here's this child I've given you to bring up. So next week, in this very space that I'm standing in, uh, Providence has invited a guy named Ted Tripp to uh, speak to parents. Ted Tripp's a really amazing teacher. And he is really good. Here's the reason we keep bringing this up. Ted Tripp is really good at helping us as parents like apply the gospel in that space. This process of taking our kids to Jesus, Ted Tripp's going to be really good at just giving us clarity. Now, what does it mean to bring gospel to play in the life of my kid all through the different stages, right? And so parents, we really encourage you. Like, we need help. Parenting is not easy. It's, it's, we can say it, bring your kids to Jesus, but sometimes the application of that gets tough. So we encourage you, come out and listen to Ted Tripp. He has stuff to share with us that helps bring clarity to that, that can help us along. And then finally, as we come to the end of this narrative, we see Jesus do something that is almost just this physical representation of what he's been telling the disciples. He's been telling the disciples, guys, I must go and I must die. I must suffer and then I must die at the hands of the scribes and Pharisees. But after that, I will be resurrected. And then this little boy, we see a demonstration of this. Uh, this boy that looks like he's going to be dead, but he has been freed uh, from oppression. Jesus' descent into greatness will cost his life. It's definitely going to include suffering, but the reward is resurrection. A resurrection that Jesus secures for us so that we will be freed from the power of the enemy, so that we are no longer called sons and daughters of the devil, but we can be sons and daughters of the living God. And this boy is just this representation, a very physical representation of what Jesus is about to undergo on our behalf. Uh, this morning, as we move towards communion, uh, we will have people in the back. Uh, Bruce and Najee Colson are going to be available for prayer. Um, and if you've listened this morning, you've thought about maybe, who do I identify with in this story? And perhaps if you've identified, then taking a moment to pray with someone is the appropriate response. Perhaps you identify with a father and there has been a crisis in you and your faith is weakened and you want to cry out to God with someone this morning. Do that. Use this space to do that. Perhaps you find yourself identifying with the crowd. You always are standing on the outside. You're not engaging. And to be honest, you're not going to be counted in a faithful generation. Um, 
but this morning something in your heart has been challenged and you want to talk to someone about what it means to become a person who believes. Become a person who's a follower of Jesus. They're available. Uh, maybe the Lord has put his finger on your heart and what has come out in a moment has not been pretty. There is sin and wickedness and you just want to talk to someone about that. And I know even among us there are people here who uh, have children, have family members who are sick. And you've asked. And you've cried out. And you've said, Lord, move. Work. Please. And the Lord in His sovereignty, mighty God, has yet to act. Right? Maybe you just need to pray with someone about that while you wrestle and wait on the Lord. Um, this morning as we look at communion, uh, as we do every week, uh, Jesus in his final uh, supper with the disciples, celebrating Passover, he took the wine and he poured it out. And he said, this wine represents my blood that has been poured out for you, the new covenant, for the remission of sins. Just a very graphic illustration of what Jesus was about to undergo. In the same way, he took bread and he broke it in front of them, ripping it and saying, this is about to represent my body, which is about to be broken for you. This morning, as you're invited to take communion, uh, we need to remember something, that the Lord um, is inviting us back to a place that's similar to on the mountain, where things were right, and they were glorious, and they were ordered, except it's going to be so much better. God is inviting us back to that place. The descent into greatness ends in greatness. But the way to that must go through the sacrifice of Jesus' body. So this morning when we take communion, we both look back and we remember what was sacrificed for us. But we look forward with joy, knowing that we are going to a place and a time it's going to be so much better than even what this one mountaintop experience looked like. Uh, this morning, if you are with us and you are a follower of Christ, he, you are a Christian, then you are welcome to take communion with us. There's going to be men stationed around the room. Often at Redstone, we do this in groups. You're welcome to do that. Welcome to grab someone and pray together and take communion together. Or if you just need to be in your seat uh, alone, that is perfectly fine too. Um, if there is some great sin in you that you are holding on to and you're not repenting of that, take time this morning before you go to communion to deal with that with the Lord. But recognize there's, there's simplicity in confession and repentance. And go to the table. So at this time, you guys are free to take communion.